Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 72 with Bob Romano on the backwoods of Maine. Just to start off, I would love to get a background on you. How did you get into fishing or into the outdoors? What what prompted that love for you? Uh, I, I probably had been fishing, you know, since I was five years old with a Mets cap and and uh, high top sneakers, uh, fishing for for uh, carp and and uh, uh, sunfish and things like that. Uh, but sometime around my college years, uh, I discovered the, a fly rod and. and uh, uh, just the beauty of of the of casting a fly rod really really caught me, and um, I've really been been you know fishing ever since. Um, I really progressed from literally using corn and and worms, uh, you know, through using lures and spoons to to then of course using flies. Now, what what got you hooked on the fly rod? Did you did someone introduce you to that? Did you see it in a uh, movie or read about it? What what got you introduced to fly? Yeah. Fishing? Um, you know, just about everything that I've done in my life, um, I've, I've learned, uh, through trial and error on my own. I've never really had a teacher, uh, uh, I'm, a, uh, until I was older, I was an avid downhill skier and I never took a lesson. Um, and kind of the same thing with fly fishing. I, I really didn't know anybody who, who fished. In fact, uh, you know, my father who was in the Navy during World War II and, uh, I was in college during the Vietnam War. And he took fly fishing as an affront. He just thought it was something that hippies did, uh, you know, because he fished with a with a spinning rod. And he actually, 
literally took offense at it and thought I was, you know, more or less kind of being uppity, uh, just another thing that I was doing to revolt against the things that he thought were, were in, important. Um, when um, um, after college and, and the war was winding down, um, we took a trip together uh, to the Catskills and uh, on the um, on the Beaverkill, um, uh, was it the Beaver? I think it was yeah, the Beaverkill River. And I had just started uh, fly fishing at that point, and, and uh, I really hadn't caught a trout at that point. And it was a Hendrickson hatch on. I didn't know what Hendricksons were at the time, but I put on a big gray fly, and uh, and my father was worming in the same river. And up until then, he would catch fish and I would not. And that was the, the first day uh, I started catching fish uh, using that hindrance. And they weren't look; they were looking up. They weren't looking down. They weren't interested in, in his uh, in his worms. And I've got a picture of him uh, that's actually hanging on my wall. He's he's long gone now, but uh, uh, I have a picture of him on the wall on that day on on that river. And um, uh, we kind of had a truce at that point. And <laughs> over the over the years, we became good friends after that. I think he, we both kind of understood each other's position. Not just a hippie thing to do when you're out fishing him, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, sure. <laughs> I, I always like when that happens because I, I do feel like there's kind of a mentality of, you know, I, I sacrifice numbers of fish at times to go fly fishing because I enjoy the act of doing it. But every so often, fly fishing really is the way to catch fish. Like that day, you're going to catch more fish with a fly rod than you will with a spin rod. And those days always feel really special. Like you've tapped into something that no one else gets to participate in. So those are always really That's for sure. (laughs) Yep. So I assume you grew up kind of in this region. If you're talking about the Beaver Kill River, at least in the Northeast, is, were you born in Maine? Did you grow up in Maine or is that somewhere you moved later in life? Yeah. So, um, of all places, and, and maybe you could tell from my accent, I was born in the Bronx. Um, so my, again, my dad would, that mom and dad were, were city uh, folks, but they moved over uh, the Hudson river into New Jersey, which is uh, suburbia. And, and that's really where I grew up. Um, my, my wife grew up in the same area. And when we were dating, um, she had said to me, um, she spent all her summers on Conway Lake in, in, uh, New Hampshire. And by that point, uh, I was older. I was, I was mm, late twenties, early thirties. And I was, um, you know, knee deep in the fly fishing. And I said, wow, you know, New Hampshire, well, let, let's go. And, uh, we spent, uh, uh, some time up in New Hampshire, but, Although Conway is a great place, it was a little crowded, uh, and we started looking north, and literally three miles north is the Rangeley region of western Maine. And uh, we spent, uh, we weren't married yet, but we spent uh, a couple of weeks at a uh, at a sporting lodge, and we both just, we had never seen country like that in our lives. Um, you know, it, it's Parts of Western Maine are still the way they were in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Nothing much has changed. So uh, we fell in love with that wild country. We married, and a year later, we bought a camp. Uh, and a camp is just a cottage, cabin, seasonal uh, uh, or residence. So we bought our own camp on the lake where, where the lodge uh, was located. And we've been going up there for the last 40 years. Um, and so I don't I don't live in the state, uh, but I guess it's my adopted state because uh, I spend most of the fishing season up there. Oh, OK. So I was I was totally wrong. I thought you lived up there. Um, but that's such a great uh, setup. And I, I feel like that must be kind of unique in that region of the country. Um, I know that once you kind of get up into Canada, things 
thin out a little bit more um, people-wise. But when I think of the Northeast U.S., I think of pretty developed, a lot of, you know, a lot of people crammed into a pretty small um, place. But it sounds like Western Maine is still kind of a, a little safe haven up there um, where you can get away from people. Yeah, it, it, it truly is. Um, there's there's uh, Route 16 is literally the only macadam road uh, that you're going to find uh, from Errol, New Hampshire to Rangeley, Maine. And, and, and that, that it's about a one hour stretch of uh, it's basically just a two lane road, one lane in each direction. Uh, but it is Macadam. Uh, and um, that area from Errol, New Hampshire, the New Hampshire border to Rangeley, that one hour stretch uh, is the Rangeley Lakes region. And, and off of that road, are just logging roads, um, either going north. Uh, the road goes pr- pretty much west to east. And so you have these logging roads going uh, either north or south. And all the water uh, that you'd be fishing uh, are off of those those roads. And Rangeley is this tiny little, you know, destination town. Um, um, and, and along Route 16, there are many, many places where uh, you can't you cannot get uh, cell phone service. Uh, my, my camp, um, does not have electricity other than our own generator. Um, we don't have water. Uh, we use the generator to pump water up from the lake uh, uh, for us to use at the cabin. Uh, our drinking water comes from a, um, a spring where we'll go with, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have maybe 10 uh, milk uh, containers, gallon containers, you know, and we'll get our fresh water that way. It lasts a couple of days. Um our lighting uh, are gas lights, the old-fashioned, you know, gas lights, and our stove and refrigerator uh, run off of propane. Uh, we have no TV. We have no landline. Uh, we don't have cell phone service. Uh, when we're up there, uh, and we're up there for a minimum of two weeks and sometimes four weeks at a time, my wife will drive out uh, in the, uh, at night. Uh, and about six miles down a logging road, you come around a bend and right there you can get cell phone service. So she'll go out every other night to call a parent or, or, or a friend just to make sure, you know, that the world hasn't gone to hell in a handbasket while we're right. away. Uh, the local people have nailed a sign on a tree at that bend that just, that just says telephone booth. Um, so um, before 9-11, uh, and we're right we're really right on the Canadian border. Um, you can see the, 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 we call them the boundary mountains. You can see the boundary mountains, uh, between Quebec and, and that part of Maine. So, uh, prior to nine 11, um, I, I believe there were three border guards, uh, because nothing's really happening up there. Um, and after nine 11, we probably have 60 border guards. Uh, nobody really knows what they're doing. Uh, they just seem to be driving around and one night, you know, my wife is, is in the car and she's on the cell phone. And of course it's nine, 10 o'clock at night. So it's, uh, you know, totally dark and there are no lights anywhere. And, uh, these, uh, most of these, um, border guard, um, uh, border patrol fellows are young, you know? Um, and so they pull up and they, you know, they see the car there and, and they shine a light into the car. And my wife doesn't take any nonsense. She rolled down the window and she's, you know, get that light out of my eyes. And the young <laughs> fellow says, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. You know, is everything okay? And she just points to the tree and he shines the light on the tree. It says telephone booth. And he, oh, okay. That's right. And try, try, <laughs> thank you. Try, drives on. But I mean, that, that's, that's the area that we're fishing in. That's, that's, you know, that's just what you're going to find up there. Yeah. I mean, we, we try to do it. So where, I mean, obviously where we live, there's plenty of cell phone service, but I always 
prefer fishing in places that have, I don't want to say no cell phone service because I always like kind of the safety of knowing that I could call for help if needed, but kind of like you're describing, uh, it's nice to know where you can get service, you know, within walking distance, you can go get it if you yep. need it. But for the most part, you don't have to worry about having it. <laughs> you know, you don't have the burden yep. of, of having service the whole time, but if you yep. need it, you can go find it. <laughs> You know, my, my dad had a heart condition from, from his mid-50s, and so he he always had that fear uh, that, you know, something could happen, and, and he, he needed to be near a doctor or a hospital or whatever. So he, he never made it up to my camp. He saw photographs of it and videos, but uh, never did. And he would ask me that question, you know, what what would happen, Bob, if, if you know, you, you got sick or you broke a leg? And I'd, I'd just say, Dad... I would die. That, uh, yeah, that's part know, of the that, part of the risk. That's part. Yeah, that's part of the deal. You know, that's what makes it so so special. Um, there is a certain danger uh, to it, and um, I don't know. That's something that that uh, appeals to me. I mean, you could look at anything like that, right? I mean, you know, what happens if you get in a car and and die that day? But well, that, you know, that, you, sure, yeah, sure. you got you got to. Yep. You know, you can't just put your life on hold just to make sure that nothing bad happens, especially when uh, the rewards can be great for for going out and experiencing that. Especially when all those brook trout are just waiting to play tag with <laughs> right. you, right? Yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about how brook trout are uh, one of my favorite fish to catch just because they're always ready to participate. You know, they they don't they get that sh- picky. Are. And uh, I'm sure we'll yep. get into this. Maybe your brook trout are yep. a little bit different since they have such a, a size difference compared to ours here. But um, yeah, brook trout are just, they're they're so much fun and they're so feisty compared to other trout. They're just such a, such a treat to catch. Um, but maybe that's are. a good transition. You know, uh, when, you, when you talk about, um, uh, you know, the, 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 this particular region of Maine uh, still being pr- uh, fairly primitive uh, and wild, um, I, I know we're going to talk about my books later on, uh, but the latest book, the one that just came out on December 15th, uh, which is a collection of short stories, the theme really running through it is um, what what compels folks like you and I, um, to seek out uh, those wild places and to seek out wild fish. And uh, for, for each of us, it's not the same reason. Uh, and as I was writing the book, I realized that, you know, you'd like to have this grandiose idea that we all do it for whatever, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever. But for each of us, I think we have our own, our own special reasons why we seek out those wild fish in those wild places. And that's what I was trying to, uh, to get at in, in this uh, latest book. But go ahead, you were going to talk about a transition. So I, I think this is just a great yep. segue into the, the fishing in your area, because we've talked about Sure. Um, kind of the wilderness behind it, which to me is is more than half the equation. If I can go to a beautiful place, I honestly couldn't really care less about how good the fishing is if I'm enjoying where I am. Um, but obviously, yep. people are going out of their way to go up and experience Western Maine. They're they're interested in the fishing. Um, so I I would love to just hear. Uh, I know you listed a couple things techniques and species and gear flies things like that um i'd love to just hear your uh explanation of you know how a fishing trip goes in western maine what are you catching and and how are you going about doing that yeah so you know we already touched on uh the 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 wildness of the of the of the region um and um the second really component is the wildness of the fish so um you're not fishing over stockfish i mean literally the entire region uh, if you catch a fish, it's going to be wild. Uh, and uh, our primary species is the brook trout. And the brook trout are native to the region. They've been there since before the Abenakis arrived. Um, and um, 
they're the largest brook trout you're, you'll find south of Labrador. So it, um, sure, we have our, you know, we have plenty of, of whatever, six inch, nine inch, 12 inch uh, brook trout. A 14 inch brook trout is not a large trout. Um, a 16 inch brook trout uh, is not uncommon. Uh, but that would be considered a, a large, a large, uh, a large fish. So, um, you know, well, we can have uh, fish that could go 20 inches, uh, 24 inches. And wow. again, these are native uh, brook trout. Uh, I don't know how that translates into pounds because I'm sure like, like you, you know, I'm releasing my fish. So uh, I, I don't, I've never really weighed them. Um, but um, we keep a log uh, at our uh, cabin, and uh, you don't get in the log unless it's a 16-inch fish. So we start there. Um, so uh, I guess back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, and, and I should say the reason why these fish uh, uh, used to grow so large, they used to be five- and six-pound brook trout. You're not going to find those anymore. Uh, but uh, we had a species of fish called a blueback trout, and they're, they're fairly extinct now. But the blueback trout uh, um, really were what the brook trout were feeding on. And as those uh, uh, bluebacks started to uh, uh, become extinct, um, the local people did two things. Uh, one, they brought in smelt, which is now our bait fish. And two, they brought uh, in uh, uh, landlocked salmon. So that that And the landlocked salmon went wild. They did stock them back in the early 1900s. Uh, but we don't stock them any longer in this particular region of Maine. Uh, they are stocked in other areas of Maine. Um, and the landlocked salmon have gone wild. So those are our two game fish. Uh, we're not really fishing over bass or pickerel or, or, or much of anything else. It's really the, the um, uh, brook trout, which are native, and the uh, salmon, which are uh, wild, um, but, but not native to, to the region. Um, the, 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 the landlocked salmon are, are, are a lot of fun to catch because um, they're just kind of the jokers of the, of the water. Uh, they, they love to dance on their tails. Uh, more often than not, your fly will go in one direction and they'll flop over in the other. Uh, they have a real knack for throwing the hook. Uh, and it's a real circus when you catch one because they literally will dance on their tails. Uh, brook trout are just the opposite. Uh, they, uh, once you've hooked them, they're going to go deep uh, and they're going to fight you subsurface all the way. Um, and um, I tell you, those large brook trout, uh, they're, they're, they're really a thrill. Um, um, I, I haven't found uh, brook trout that large, um, really, um, you know, certainly not in New York or New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, anywhere here on the East Coast. Um, as far as um, uh, techniques are concerned, um, you know, when you're fishing for brown trout, um, uh, and even large brown trout, um, they're really very dainty fish, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna come up to the surface or uh, just sip that fly, you may not even know they're there. Uh, they're very particular, uh, you know, you have to have just the right fly, I mean, I guess that's where a match the hatch came in. Uh, so they're particular, they're, they're, uh, they're, um, uh, dainty and they're fussy. You know, you have to have a perfect drift, right? If there's any drag on your fly, they're just going to kind of laugh at you. They're not going to take it. Well, um, um, fishing in Maine, or at least in, in, in the Rangy Lakes region, uh, is quite different. Um, 
uh, our fish, uh, well, number one, we don't have sustained hatches. So, um, um, you know, a Hendrickson hatch in the Catskills might last for two weeks. And it, it, it's almost, you can, you can set your watch, you know, it's going to maybe start at what, I don't know, two in the afternoon and go to four or five. And it'd be one afternoon after the other. Your sulfur hatches, same thing, you know, it'll, it'll a day after day after day. The timing might be a little bit later each day. Um, in the Range of Lakes region, you may have a hatch and you're lucky if it goes on for an hour. And, it, it, you know, it might cover, it might cover, I don't know, you know, 100 yards on the river. And a fella or a gal, you know, fishing downstream from that isn't going to see a Hendrickson. Uh, so, uh, again, very sporadic. And that, uh, that means that the trout have to, can't be that particular. They cannot be that fussy. If they see, uh, if they see something to eat, they, they really have to take it. Um, the other thing is that most of our rivers, uh, and we can get into the actual rivers themselves as we go on here, but most of our, our rivers are really fast running, uh, very heavy water, um, significant rapids, um, uh, my home water up there is the Megalloway River, and uh, when I give programs on the Megalloway, uh, I will tell folks, you know, there used to be a movie, uh, and, and it was called uh, No Country for Old Men. Well, the Megalloway River is no river for old men, and I can say that because I'm one of those old men now. I remember days when I could I could get to that particular pool where I knew there were fish, and I didn't need a waiting staff. All right, then there were days, years after that, when I could still get to the pool, but I needed a waiting staff. Now I just look at that pool longingly, and I know unless they're going to have a helicopter, I'm not getting to that pool because my legs are are going to rebel. So that's the type of water uh, that that you could be fishing in. And again, because of that, uh, the brook trout uh, don't have time uh, to, 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 you know, take that fly off the water. So because of the type of water and the lack of hatches, um, you know, they really are opportunistic and they really have to hit, hit and run. And that's just by a brook trout's nature. Besides everything else, um, you know, they're, they're just a tough fish. They're, they're a, a, a pugnacious fish. Um, and so uh, they're going to nail, you know, whatever is flying over them. So for all those reasons, uh, a technique that, and by the way, people that don't live in the region, uh, we call them people from away. Uh, if you're a vacationer there, a local will say, oh, that, you know, that, that fellow's from away. So when people from away fish the region, again, they're using the traditional techniques of, no, no, uh, of a perfect drift, uh, no drag, trying to match the hatch. Um, and I have found, even with a, with a dry fly, especially with a wet fly, um, you, you just need movement. Uh, you need a, a twitch, uh, a little, a little uh, a pull, you know, on your line. If you just give a little bit of movement, it just triggers these fish something awful. Um, and that's something that just, you know, people, again, from away, sports coming there uh, for a few days or a week, uh, you know, just they ought to keep that in mind because that'll take a heck of a lot of fish. Um, uh, the other thing is most of our fishing, uh, quite honestly, is subsurface. Um, so, um, the, the last two, we, we don't have ice out until, uh, sometimes the, the end of the second week of May. Uh, so April, you know, uh, first week of May, second week of May, our lakes are all iced over, uh, just around the third week of May, the ice is, or, or maybe the latter half of that second week, the ice is breaking up. 
And as soon as the ice breaks up, the smelt, those are our bait fish, uh, they leave the lakes on their own spawning run. And now they're, they're in the rivers. And that's when the big fish, hungry after a long winter, they're going to follow the smelt uh, up the rivers. Uh, and that's a real opportunity to catch a trophy fish. Uh, and that's really those last two weeks of May. So that, that is a classic time to be on the water in, in, this, in this region of May. Um, we don't have any uh, um, um, uh, dry fly action uh, during that time. It's all subsurface. You can literally leave your dry flies home. So um, uh, the guys that are fishing in a traditional manner, they're all using streamers. Um, and the classic streamer for that time of year is uh, called a black ghost. Um, later on, if we talk a little bit about the, uh, the history of the region, I'll get into, you know, where that, where that, uh, streamer uh, came from. Uh, but, a but a black, black ghost has a white shoulder. Uh, and at that time of year, uh, the fish are triggering on the smelt. And so there, that, that uh, any streamer with a white shoulder or a predominantly white body uh, is, is going to take fish. Um, a lot of the younger guys are nymphing. And honestly, you can't go wrong. I mean, I mean uh, if, whether you're using uh, European style nymphing or our style, um, um, you're going to catch a lot of fish that time of year on nymphs. Um, I, uh, over the years, uh, have really grown accustomed to fishing with wet flies. And um, if, if there was one wet fly that, that uh, I, I had to use, and if that was the only fly I could use all season long, uh, and this is the only secret I'm going to give up uh, on, in this podcast, uh, uh, it's a gold-ribbed hare's ear wet fly. Uh, and that, that fly goes back, I think, to England, maybe the 1800s. I'm really not sure. Um, but it's, it's a gold-ribbed hare's ear wet fly, not the nymph. Uh, it's got a fixed wing. Uh, and I can't tell you why, but the brook trout and the landlocked salmon, uh, they just go, go crazy uh, over that particular fly. And, you know, when there is dry fly action, you can, you can fish it in the surface film. Uh, but this, again, those last two weeks of May, you're going to fish it uh, deeper. Uh, and again, uh, you want to fish it, uh, with, with action. You want to be, be, uh, you know, uh, letting it drift and then, and then, um, um, twitch it, drift, drift, uh, you may want to, uh, just move it along and just try different types of action until you hit the right one. And then, then it, it should really, really work for you. Um, the second time those big fish are in the river is in September because that's when they're spawning. So the two, the two best times are those last two weeks of May and uh, near the end of, of September. Now, in between, uh, certainly you could, you could still catch fish, uh, but then it's getting a little bit harder. Uh, you, you have uh, caddis all summer long, and you, 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 know, you have to figure out what, what caddis pattern to use. Now and then, uh, you do have um, some mayfly action, not a heck of a lot. Um, uh, flying ants is another great pattern uh, in, in Western Maine, and they can come on any time of the year. But again, you, you might have a hatch for a half hour, 45 minutes, and then you're gone. So you kind of need to be prepared. Uh, to, if it happens, you want to have that those ant patterns uh, there. Yep. Wow, that that is a ton of great info, and I I have a lot of questions um, based on what you said. Sure. Um, I, I actually got a couple comments too. Um, one about the brook trout. 
what what is considered a trophy fish? Because I heard you use the phrase trophy fish, um, but and you seem to imply that 16 inches is about where it's like this is a, a respectable fish. Um, what what is considered a trophy brook trout in your area? Well, let's start with that 16 inch uh, fish. A 16 any any sport that that's going to catch a 16 inch brook trout is going to go home very happy. Uh, they're going to consider that a trophy. Okay. Uh, but 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 yeah. But I think that the folks there that are fishing hard that know the water, you know, 18 inches on and on up. Okay. Um, again, I I would see guys that um, you know that I know and that fish regularly. Again, 16 inch fish put a smile on their face, but they're not going to get all that that excited about it. I might, but I don't know as they would. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you're getting into 18 inches. Yeah, you're talking about a a, a fish that, that would take your breath away. Yeah, and, I, and that would be true for the for the salmon as well. Oh, yeah. okay. I, I would have pictured the salmon um, significantly larger, but uh, that's good to know. So, yeah. So these are not Atlantic salmon, right? So, so the Atlantic salmon. Oh, right. These are the um, landlocked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, these are the landlocked. So, yeah. So they're 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 much smaller. They're, they're basically very comparable to the brook trout. Are these kokanee? No, no. These these are. Uh, I, I mean, our description of them are landlocked salmon, and they have that kind of silver. Uh, and black uh, uh, side to them, um, almost like a, cr- a, a chrome uh, body uh, that that is silver uh, with a kind of a almost a black I don't know maybe zebra uh, sort of um, um, uh, markings uh, on them. Oh, okay. Because I I thought maybe um, something that you sent over had mentioned kokanee salmon there, and I had been surprised to to hear that they were in that area because I think of kokanee salmon as being more of a West Coast thing. Um, but maybe I missed. Yeah, I think they are. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, secondly, just some comments. Uh, I, I like that you mentioned that, you know, the, the brook trout, you said, have that limited feeding window, which is why they're so uh, voracious in the times that they are feeding. Um, but then you also mentioned that that's just kind of in the nature of brook trout. And I, I appreciated that because that's how I think of them, too. Um, you know, we've got brook trout out here, obviously not native, um, but they, they we have we have prolific hatches and the brook trout are still always very, very eager um, like we talked about earlier, they're, they're, they're always ready to play ball. And that's something I like about them. So it's, it's good to hear that they are that way where you are too. Cause I kind of pictured, you know, these larger fish. I don't, I picture smaller fish as being a little bit more voracious than the larger ones who kind of seem to pick their battles. You know, is it, is it worth expending energy to go over here to sip this fly? Um, or should I wait for something larger to come past? And it's nice to hear that the brook trout where you are, even at their larger size, uh, are still, you know, eager and willing to play. Yeah, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this story. So, um, a few years back, um, and we're getting near the end of May, and uh, four or five of us are on the river, and again, we're fishing subsurface, and and that was working all week for us, catching fish all week, and so we hit this particular day, and we're just not catching fish, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm going from one streamer to another streamer, putting a wet fly on, trying to nip, nothing's working, and I realized, kind of out of the corner of my eye, I see a splash. And I start looking, I see another splash. And I said, you know, what's going on here? Why, why am I seeing these splashes? And again, brook trout, you know, they're not going to sip a fly. You know, if they're going to nail it, that, that's what you're going to see. Uh, and so, all right, well, let me put a, a 14 atoms on, you know, pretty, just a, a fly that, uh, with a searching pattern, if you will. And I, I put it on and sure enough, I can see a, a, a fish comes up uh, noses the fly, but doesn't take it. Uh, 
Um, and after a while, I go from, from a, a 14 to a 16 to an 18. And every drift, fl- uh, fish are coming up, but they're not taking the fly. And I said, this is, this is just unusual. And um, um, we don't have many small patterns uh, in, in the region uh, that, that we would be using. So I'm going through my, my, my kit. And at the very bottom of the kit, not even in a fly box, just laying there is a, a 20 zebra emerger. And I said, yeah, you got to be kidding. But I put it on and don't you know, they start hitting it. And again, I mean, they're just coming up and nailing it. And uh, so I, I, maybe after my sixth or seventh fish, my buddy comes down because he's seeing this, you know, and he looks at me and he says, uh, you know, what are you doing? What, what, what are you catching them on? And I just smile and I say, well, number 10 black ghost. <laughs> I figure you got to work for it. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give away something like that. You want to know how to do it, not be given the answer. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, so, um, um, you really have to look for those splashes. And again, that's, that's, that's the kind of the the modus operandi of a brook trout, uh, that if they want something, they're going to take it. They're not going to, they're not going to be shy. And and that's true for, for the, for the bigger fish as well. Yeah. Another thing that you mentioned that I was, um, curious about was the fact that you meant and I'm, I'm sure that based on this story and um the fact that you said that they're really taking nymphs earlier and later in the season you know like late spring early fall um i'm assuming they're taking dry flies kind of throughout the summer but i honestly like don't remember the last time i caught a uh, a brook trout on a nymph apart from maybe a dry dropper like where i'm where i'm throwing both and one of them happens to take the dropper yep. but of all the fish i fish for you know i i nymph probably half the time or more um just could, because it's effective but with brook trout i very very heavily associate them with dry fly fishing whereas rainbows and browns um i probably catch more on droppers than i do on on dries or just on straight nymph rigs um so it's interesting to hear that that your brook trout uh you are using like a dedicated nymph rig because that's just it's it's not something that i even associate with that species at all hmm. yeah in the bigger rivers uh, that really is the way to go hmm. um you, you, uh, a, a, for two reasons i think one in in, in the bigger rivers um those large fish are going to stay uh, at the bottom they're, they're not going to come up uh very often uh again because we don't have those prolific hatches that you do that would otherwise bring them uh to the top now we're again i'm talking about the larger rivers and i'm talking about uh, big fish and um uh, to be honest, um, you know, one one issue with which with fishing the bigger rivers is that um, there are going to be other anglers there. Uh, they're going to they're going to be other you know uh, uh, fishermen that, that are going to want to catch that trophy fish. And um, more often than not, uh, I prefer uh, to get into the backcountry uh, where there are no fishermen, uh, and there we're fishing headwaters. And that's probably what you're more uh, familiar with. So there, uh, a 10-inch brook trout, uh, in, in a sense, and not, not a trophy, but that's a big fish, a 10-inch right, brook right. trout, when you're, when you're fishing the headwaters. And that's kind of the, the classic brook trout fishing that you're talking about. So if I'm fishing, and, and now I do more of that now than anything else. And, and when I am uh, fishing uh, those smaller streams, um, I will literally have a sucrets tin in my, in my chest pocket with about, you know, six flies only because if I break one off, I want to have an extra one. Right. But really, I just need two fl- two flies, you know. I need my favorite dry fly going upstream and my favorite wet fly going downstream. And, and that's about it. Um, I used to just use a Royal Wolf. And, you know, at, at some point I said, you know, this just isn't fair. Uh, you know, I, I should at least try. Uh, and so now my favorite 
dry fly is a it's a pheasant tail, uh, but with a parachute wing. Uh, so if you think about a pheasant tail nymph, it's kind of that body, but it's got a parachute wing and a calf tail post. So it's really easy to see. Uh, and, and, and these little streams, uh, up there, um, again, you're fishing a lot of plunge pools, uh, riffles. Uh, and so there's a lot of, a lot of that type of broken water. Uh, and, and the, the, the parachute wing keeps it uh, floating, you know, just right. Those little streams, um, on a good day, a trout will flash at literally every cast. Uh, you're not going to catch a fish in every cast, but you'll see a fish on every cast. And it could be a 30 or 40 or 50 feet, a 50 fish day if your legs hold out. Uh, and you'll never see another angler. Uh, these, these streams, um, I don't know, maybe, what, maybe 10, 10 feet wide, 15 feet wide. Um, and they'll just go on and on and on. Some of them just keep going right past the border in, into Canada. Uh, and that, that's really heaven's gate. Uh, those, those type of streams. Uh, I just love them. Um, and I love the little fish that are in there too. They're so, so spunky. Uh, I've had fish where uh, sometimes the, the fly is almost bigger than the fish. And, and, you know, you look at this little guy, maybe he's the size of my pinky and, and he jumps, what, you know, six inches out of the water, uh, to, to, to get that fly. And, and, you, know, you got to give him a lot of credit. Yeah. And that's definitely what you just described there is is what I experience because we don't have that that option of the larger fish in the larger rivers. Here, our larger rivers do not have brook trout. Um, they've got rainbows and browns, and if you're lucky, cutthroats. See, like some cutthroats yep, might make yep. their way down in, but even the cutthroats are generally spilling down in. I feel like from uh, the more headwater streams, and the cutthroat is surely our our gem here. You know, the the our cutthroat is your brook trout, um, but we do have brook yeah, trout, yeah. and that that would be my second second choice of a fish to catch in those because. Like I said before, I, I prioritize getting away and getting to a beautiful location and just enjoying myself uh, in that way more than like catching a giant fish. And so I more often find myself in these uh, remote backcountry streams that have tiny brook trout. And, and it sounds like what you have there, that does mimic what we have here. It's just that we don't have that option of going to a big river and catching a big brook trout because that, that's, that, that doesn't exist here. You know, if you, get, if you go to a big river, you're catching rainbows yeah. and browns. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, the, 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 the other advantage of, of fishing those small streams and, and really, you know, um, you're going to see a lot of a lot more wildlife uh, along the stream. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our, we we've had we have moose, which are uh, fairly common. Um, I, sometimes when I'm publicizing my books, I'll say something like, you know, um, 
the moose outnumber the anglers, which really isn't true, but, but, uh, but we do have a, a, a fair uh, population of moose, uh, and, and I see them almost every, every uh, trip. Uh, I remember a time uh, um, a couple of years back where, um, you know, I'm working my way up this little brook and, and there's a, um, um, a tree that had fallen over the stream, literally from one bank to the other. And I look up and uh, Black Bear crosses the, the, the log uh, and, and three uh, triplets right behind her, three cubs, go right across the stream on that log. Um, and, you know, that, that's the type of thing that you're going to see uh, in that in that area. Right. I have people from 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 here when I give a program and I'll tell us, I'll, you know, I might tell that story and, and they'll literally get spooked and say, well, you know, you, you don't want to fish where they're bear and moose. And I said, you know. <laughs> they're far more afraid of us than we are of them. I have never had a problem with an animal. I've had a problem with a two-legged animal up right. there, you know, a cold man, <laughs> right? But uh, I've never had a problem with, with any of the animals. And they're so abundant. You know, we see otter and fox and uh, and um, um, grouse uh, up in Maine. They call them partridge. Uh, of course, deer. Um, but just about just about any animal, uh, you know, that, that you could, you could think of on, in, in the North, North America, you're going to find in, in the main backwoods. Yeah. Uh, that, again, that's one of the charms of, of the area. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's one of the treats of being out there is you get to experience that and see, seeing things like bears and moose, which we have here too. And I don't see very often, well, we don't see bears very often. We see moose fairly often, but, um, being scared is like always the last thing on my mind when I see one, it's, it's like, Oh, there's a bear. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's right. exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of exciting, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, you, f- you feel privileged, actually. Yeah. yeah, I mean, not a lot of people get to experience that, and and you get to do yeah. that. So, um, but this, I think, this is a good another transition here to um, kind of the sporting history, because I know we we kind of touched on the uh, how how to catch a fish, what what the fishing is like, but um, more interesting yeah. to me, and I know you said the same as well, is the the rich history of this area. Um, you know, I being in Colorado, I'm used to a lot of you know, a lot of people around here fly fish, but there's not, I don't feel like there's the same depth of history as there is in the Northeast where fly fishing has been around a lot longer, um, as far as I'm aware. And so I, I just want to hear some highlights. I know you listed a bunch of things, um, on the sheet that I sent you, uh, in particular, I really, really want to hear about the Ode to White Nose Pete. (laughs) That's, that was, uh, (laughs) the most exciting thing that I saw there, but, um, whatever you find interesting, I would love to hear, um, just what, what you really find great about, about this region of the country. Yeah, you, you know, usually uh, when I uh, give a program on the region, and I've got a, a, actually a hundred photographs. So, what I'll in in a program for say a TU chapter, uh, I'll have the slideshow with all the photographs, uh, and, and I'll you know, be talking about the same things that that, that uh, you and I are speaking about. Uh, but I usually begin the program by saying, you know. Um, there's so many wonderful places to fish in the country, uh, and many of them have trophy fish. Uh, some of them uh, have wild country, uh, but this region of Maine, um, it's really a trifecta. Uh, you have that wild country, you have uh, native and wild fish, uh, but then you have this sporting history to go along with it. And um, um, history has always been important to me, um, and uh, especially as a writer. And so 
um, um, you know, when I realized that there was this sporting history, I, I, I just, you know, gobbled it up. I mean, I wanted to know everything. Um, so it, it really dates back to um, shortly after the Civil War, when, uh, again, these five pound, six pound brook trout uh, were discovered and uh, folks from New York and Massachusetts and Connecticut uh, started to, to uh, gravitate, you know, toward the region. Um, on my lake, uh, and there's about six lakes in this Rangeley Lakes region, uh, although uh, most of us are fishing the rivers, uh, but on my lake, which is the most western lake, up until the late 1800s, uh, other than the Abenaki, uh, there really, there, there weren't many people uh, that that um, uh, even um, had, had, you know, hiked into the area. And, it, and it's known as the Parmich, is it, there's a river, there's a lake called uh, Parmichini, Lake Parmichini. And actually, um, uh, it was named after, um, a, a, a Native American, uh, a chief's daughter, uh, means, uh, I think smiling waters or beautiful waters. And, um, it's called the Parmichini track. So in the late 1800s, uh, Johnny Danford and Fred Baker, two 20-year-olds, decide they're going to they're going to spend the winter uh, up on the Parmachini track, and they're going to hunt, and they're going to and they're going to um, uh, trap. And um, sure enough, they do it, and they wrote a book, and you can go on Amazon, and I think maybe for 20 bucks, you know, you get a soft cover, and it literally. Uh, will tell you uh, the, their story of spending a, a winter up there. And Johnny Danford um, um, decides now he's going to create a lodge, a sporting lodge. Uh, and um, he tries to build it on a piece of land. And the, and, and the landowners basically, uh, there's, a, there's a fight between him and, and other sporting lodges. And, and, and he just can't, uh, can't buy any land. He gets involved in a lawsuit. So what does he do? He literally builds a barge brings it out to the middle of Lake Parmachini uh, and creates a lodge that just floats on the lake uh, and just goes from, you know, wherever he wants, wherever he wants to go. Um, and uh, I don't know that, that just, you know, when I heard that story, I said, well, that, that's really something. And, and I'm, that's where I'm fishing. I'm fishing up in this Parmachini track. So, I mean, there, there are times when, you know, I'll look over my shoulder and I can swear Johnny Danford is standing there, you know, it's kind of smiling at me. Um, uh, in, in the 1920s, uh, if you were a writer or you were an artist or you were a poet, uh, the place to be was Paris, France. So Hemingway, Fitzgerald, um, Picasso, um, you name it, that's where they hung out. Well, in the 1920s and 30s, the place to be was at a place called Upper Dam, which is literally in the, in the heart of this Rangy Lakes region. Uh, and Upper Dam, uh, up until about five years ago, was a wooden dam constructed in the 1800s. They've rebuilt it now, and, and it, it, it held back the waters of Mooseluk Maguntic Lake uh, from the waters of Richardson Lake. And so about a quarter, of, well, a little bit less than a quarter of a mile, uh, the, the water coming out of that dam um, uh, is, is fish like a river. Uh, and there are all cottages uh, up at, at Upper Dam that go back to the 1920s. So um, one of the fellows that, that was there was a guy named Shang Wheeler. And uh, Shang was a, was a character and he would like to tell stories. And uh, he came up with this story uh, about uh, um, uh, White Nose Pete. Some people call him Pincushion pin Pete. So, so uh, White Nose Pete uh, allegedly was a brook trout. 
uh, of mythic proportions that lived under Upper Dam. Uh, and um, the way Native Americans counted coup, uh, that's what White Nose Pete would do with any angler that dared to try to catch him. And so um, uh, he's, he's White Nose because he's so old that his, his uh, um, you know, nose and face, I guess, has, has gone white. And he's pincushioned because he's got every fly of every angler who tried to catch him sticking in his, in his jaw. And um, Shang uh, was um, one of the um, most famous uh, amateur decoy builders. And so what does he do? Of course, he builds a mount of, of white noses, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, draw and face with all the flies uh, stuck in it. And um, he's out there fishing one day with uh, a fellow by the name of Joe Bates. And Joe Bates uh, later on uh, is known as Colonel Joseph Bates fought in World War II, and he ends up writing three books about brook trout fishing and, and streamers and, and, and becomes pretty famous in the area. But at the time, Joe was a young man right before World War II, and he's fishing with Shang, and sure enough, he hooks into a monster brook trout, and he turns to Shang, and he says, this has got to be White Nose Pete. And Shang says, well, maybe it is, you know, well, let's see. And well, right at the last minute, of course, the brook trout broke off, and, and uh, Joe lost his fly, and you know, he figured it had to be. So now, uh, fast forward maybe five or six years, whatever, and Joe uh, is in, in the war, and he's in fighting in the Pacific. And he sends a, a, a card back to Shang Wheel or a letter, and he says, Shang, if I ever get out of this living hell, I'm coming back, and I'll be damned, but I'm going to catch, you know, White Nose Pete. And I thought this was a dirty trick to play on somebody who's fighting in the war, but Shang sends him back a photograph of the mount that he's now made uh, with all those flies in it. And he says, well, Joe, I beat you to it. Uh, and, and, and so, um, um, you know, when Joe comes back from the war, I guess, you know, it, they, they, he, he tells him it was, it was all a joke, but that's basically the story of white nose Pete. Now, um, years later, everybody's looking for the mount that, that Shang had created. It, it kind of got lost. Nobody know where it was. And I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, it showed up. And now it is in uh, the little town of Aquasic outside of Rangeley, Maine. Uh, there is the Rangeley, Maine Sporting Museum. And you can see the Mount of White Nose Pete that was created by Shang Wheeler. Uh, and that's just one of hundreds of, of stories that, that, that come out of this region. And the nickname for the region uh, is called um, um, the Land of Fishing Legends. Um, and if you go to the local fly shop, of course, there's a big sign up there that says Land of, of Fishing Legends. And I guess Shang and, and Joe were one of those legends. Another one, um, um, I'll tell you two more. So we were talking before about the White Ghost Streamer. And, you know, out west, I don't know as folks would really know about that streamer. They could certainly Google it and, and the pattern will come up. It's a pretty easy pattern, actually, to tie. Um, but um, th there was a fellow by the name of Herbert Welch, uh, Welsh, and uh, Herb lived in the area. And, um, you know, he could cast 100, uh, 100 feet uh, without a rod, uh, you know, literally just using his hands and a reel. Uh, so he was a great caster. He was a great guide. He was an entrepreneur. He had his own fly fishing shop. Uh, he was a taxidermist. He was an artist. Um, and he, and he came up with this pattern. Uh, so he was really a, um, um, uh, you know, quite a, quite a character being able to do all those things, kind of a Renaissance uh, man of, of, uh, fly fishing. 
Um, so the black ghost became a, a very famous pattern. About the same time, um, there was a couple by the name of um, Wallace and Carrie Stevens. Again, they had their cottage at Upper Dam. Wallace was the premier guide. And uh, at the time, a lot of folks fished from boats. And there was a boat called a Rangeley boat. And um, it was built specifically for the area. And uh, prior to World War II, it had a pointed bow and, and a pointed uh, stern. Um, and sometime around World War II, uh, outboard engines uh, were created. And they say that literally within days of the first outboard engine, uh, you know, coming to the Rangeley area, uh, every guide in the area had cut off the stern of their boats and, and, and that made them flat in order to accommodate a, an engine because they, they were really tired of having to row those, those big <laughs> boats. Uh, and, and the story goes that, um, you know, the kids in the area, um, you know, there's not a hell heck of a lot to do there. And if they weren't fishing, uh, they found great sport in uh, putting uh, sugar in these outboard engines and then just, you know, sitting back and, and listening to the words that were coming out of the guide's mouth as they kept pulling the cord. Uh, and if you ever look at a picture of Wallace Stevens, you'll never find him smiling. And, and I just have the feeling that these kids were playing that trick uh, on Wallace, uh, you know, more often than not. But, but everybody back then knew Wallace. No, nobody knew his wife, Carrie. Well, uh, I think it was Carrie's father who uh, uh, was a haberdasher. And so Carrie w always had um, uh, available to her feathers and, and fur and tinsel and things like that. And um, so she started to create uh, these streamers. Uh, she had, she didn't have a vice. She would, she would do it in, in her hands actually. And, um, one day she's fishing up on, uh, under upper dam. Uh, and, um, she entered a contest, I think for field and stream or somehow the field and stream magazine discovered, and she caught a five pound or six pound brook trout. And, uh, they did a story of her in field and stream. And from that day on, everybody wanted to buy her streamers and her most famous streamer, uh, is a gray ghost. Uh, so you've got a black ghost by Herb and you got the gray ghost by Carrie. And that, that fish she caught, that six pound uh, trout was not caught on a gray ghost. I think it, I think everybody thinks it was, but my understanding is it was a different streamer uh, that she used. Uh, it's also my understanding that she liked to fish with worms. Uh, but she just that happened to be that day that she used a streamer and lucky for her. Uh, and so for, for years and on, you know, she, she, um, um, uh, became famous, you know, for, for her streamers. Um, uh, another person that was there at the same time, um, well, two other people, Flyrod Crosby. So Flyrod Crosby um, was the first reg registered Maine guide and happened to be a woman. Uh, so, you know, we really have a lot of bells of the woods uh, in our area. We have, we've got Carrie Stevens, we have Flyrod Crosby, uh, and, and the third uh, uh, woman is Louise Dickinson Rich. So uh, Louise's story is near and dear to my heart. Uh, my wife and I, uh, my wife is six years younger than me. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I kind of, um, um, I, you know, I, I saw a good thing and I grabbed onto <laughs> it. And uh, I, I was lucky that she stayed with me all these years. Um so uh, Louise is out with a bunch of her friends uh, picnicking in, in the woods by the Rapid River. And uh, a 
I'm trying to think of his name now. Um, Ralph, Ralph Rich, uh, who was a woodsman. He literally made his made his living in the woods. He had a cabin. That's where he lived. And he sees these young women, uh, and he sees Louise, and he says to himself, um, "I'm going to marry that woman." Uh, and she, you know, after picnicking, I guess they go back to the big city, which is probably like a town like Errol that only had 300 people living there. And, and Ralph follows her back and woos her. Uh, and you know, your listeners will have to look up the word woo, uh, but, um, um, and brings her, marries her and brings her back to the woods, brings her back to the rapid river. And they're, they're living there. He was, he was much older than she was and they're living there. And he had this rambling, uh, um, sort of cabin that had holes in it. And, you know, there were mice going in and out. And I guess in the summertime, the, the roof would leak. And after her first winter, she said, Ralph, if I'm going to stay with you, you're going to have to build me a cabin so that, you know, it has some degree of warmth in the winter. And he did. He built a one-room cabin uh, just down from the from the, the bigger cabin. And they would spend the summer cabin. They spend the summers in the big cabin and, and the winters in this little cabin. Uh, so, um, and I, I should say that the story has a happy ending for her, but not so much for Rick, uh, not so much for Ralph because he was older. They spent 13 years on the rapid river. Uh, he then passed away. Uh, but, 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 um, Louise lived to a ripe old age, uh, really literally into her eighties all during this time writing books. And her first book is called, we took to the woods. Again, you can get it on eBay probably for five bucks. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah, we took to the woods. And if you're going to get it, make sure you get the one with the black and white photographs. Um, and they're photographs of her and Ralph and their dog, Kayak, and their son. Uh, and, and, and just a wonderful story about living in the great North Woods uh, during the 30s and 40s. And she was um, uh, a real, um, um, uh, uh, just a wonderful writer and a uh, real influence on my writing. It was one of the reasons why I began writing about about uh, the, uh, the region. Um, um, many years after they're gone, uh, a fella bought the property with, with, with both of these cabins, and he, he would rent out the winter house. And uh, my wife and I, and at the time my young daughter, Emily, uh, we had the opportunity to spend uh, a long weekend in Louise's winter house. Uh, and uh, I remember about midnight, we heard a scratching at the door and I got up and, you know, looked, there was nothing. I went back to bed. We heard a scratching again. This happened about three times. Couldn't find anything. And I just said to my wife, I think it was the ghost of kayak, you know, Louise's dog that's coming back to see who, who's in their, who's in their cabin. Um, but, um, you know, those are the type of interesting people that, you know, from the 1800s right on to, to, to um, you know, past World War II uh, that, that, that fished in the area. Uh, and, and you really get the feeling that, you know, you're walking in their shoes. You can literally fish uh, the pool where, where um, um, Carrie Stevens caught that six pound um, uh, trout. And you can use the very streamer, you know, that, that she used. Um, there's a pool on the upper McGalloway where I fish called Little Boy Falls. And it's where President Eisenhower fished back in the, uh, back in the 1950s. And it, it, it is literally down a, a very narrow trail through a spruce forest. Uh, it's a portage trail that the Abenaki used to use. Uh, and you come down and there's this just beautiful, uh, very large pool with a little waterfall uh, coming into it. Uh, and 
the, where you would least expect it um, um, screwed into a large boulder uh, is a brass plaque that the Republican, uh, you know, women of Maine have 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 put there and com- to commemorate, you know, Ike's fishing the pool. And, uh, and again, you can fish in that very pool, you know, where President Eisenhower fish. Uh, one story I heard, I don't know if it's really true, is that the first day he fished, he didn't catch many fish. And when he went back to the lodge that night, you know, he was grousing a little bit. And uh, so the guides went out at night uh, behind his back and they stocked so many brook trout, he could have walked across their shoulders to get to the other side. And the next day he had a great, you know, a great, a great uh, afternoon and, uh, and everybody was happy. Again, another story, uh, um, you know, from that region. So, um, yeah, it's that history, you know, that re- really gets to me that, that, I, that I, I feel that, you know, um, I'm part of that history. You know, you could be part of that history. It's just a matter of, you know, taking up a fly rod and, 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 and spending some, some time there. Um, there are these traditional main sporting lodges. Uh, and there, there are uh, there are quite a few, but the three that I'm familiar with, uh, there is Bozebuck Mountain Camps that provides access to the McGalloway River system. There is um, Grants Camps uh, that provides access to the Kennebago River system, uh, and there is uh, Lakewood Camps that provides access to the Rapid River, the, the river I was just talking about where Louise Dickinson Rich uh, ha- had lived. And these sporting camps all date back uh, to either the late 1800s or early 1900s. Some of them may have only had three owners over that, that entire stretch of time. Uh, and these are very traditional. You know, you'll have a, um, uh, a large uh, uh, room where you'll take your meals uh, and maybe next to it will be a place to p- play cribbage or, or uh, cards. Um, and you're not going to have, you know, a TV or anything like that. And then flanking that large uh, building are going to be these cabins. And again, these, these cabins are very rustic. It's usually a one room cabin, uh, you know, with a single bed, a desk, a chair, uh, a, a toilet and a wood stove, uh, maybe a shower. Yeah. And a wood stove. And again, those cabins have been around, uh, you know, since late 1800s, early 1900s. And I would recommend your listeners that if, if they do, uh, you know, plan a trip to the region, uh, yeah, at least once you have to stay, uh, at, at one of those sporting lodges. Uh, it, it, you know, all the history is, is right there. It's seeping out of those walls. Um, it, it's just, it's just, I mean, I can go on and on, but it's, it's just, uh, uh, you know, it's taken my heart away. I have to tell you. Yeah. I think that's something that comes with time in, I mean, it's not even just fly fishing. It's anything it's, it's skiing, it's hunting, it's fishing. It's, it's whatever you want to dive into, but when you first get started, you just want to learn how to do it and you want to catch some fish and you're, you're upset if you don't catch fish. And there comes a point where, you know, you've, you've got enough fish that what becomes more interesting is, is learning about the local culture or the local history of a place. And, uh, you mentioned like, I don't, I don't know if this story is true or not, but like it, the way I view it is it doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's part of the lore at this point and whether it actually happened or not yeah. is, is almost like a side, a side issue, you know? Um, th- that, that becomes part of the, the lure of the area is just the local legends and um, the fact that, that people think that um, Carrie caught that fish on, a, on the, on the uh, Great Ghost. And, it, you know, d- just things like this that come about and it, and it becomes part of the, the history of, of it, even, even if it's not true. Um, and that's actually something I yep. wanted to ask about your books. This might be a good way to kind of wrap up and um, talk about some of the books you've written. Uh, I saw it. I saw when I was reading about you um, and your books that, uh, it, or at least the book you sent me, 
um, which I haven't gotten to read, but I, I kind of read the, the beginning of it and um, your forward. And it was, it said like this, this is entirely fictional. Um, I, these are things from my imagination, but I've also changed like the names of places. And I wanted to ask is, is this a fictional book or is this a true book that doesn't actually have any of the right information? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the latest book, um, um, which is uh, River Flowers, is a collection of short stories. So the stories themselves are fictional, okay. uh, but the places are not. Okay, okay, uh, that makes you sense. Know, so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, if, if a character, uh, again, if a character is fishing with a particular streamer, um, um, yeah, I mean, and, and whatever, you know, however they're fishing it, yeah, that would be accurate. Um, but uh, the characters themselves are either composites of, of folks that I, I know or knew, uh, or they're, they're completely, you know, part of my imagination. And just, just to give you a quick example. So, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give away one of just one of the stories there. So there's a story there uh, called the Goldberg. Well, um, there, there is a, um, a fly in Maine that uh, New Englanders uh, have taken it as their own fly. It's their go-to fly. It's called a Hornberg. I don't know, again, out west if, if you'd be familiar with it. So, uh, and, and, But it's interesting in that the Hornberg was created by a warden in Wisconsin, uh, having nothing, obviously, to do with the state of Maine. Uh, but at some point, remember that guy Joe Brooks that I said wrote, wrote two or three books and he thought he had caught White Nose Pete? Well, in J- one of Joe's books, uh, he's showing these different streamers to catch brook trout and he describes the Hornberg, tells its history, tells you how to tie it. And from that, uh, people of Maine uh, started using this fly. And it's, it really is anybody in Maine, if you say Hornberg, you know, their eyes light up. That's the fly that they use. So um, when I was just starting, and I think I may have mentioned uh, early on in the program that uh, while my wife, before we were married and I was fairly young and I, I was just starting out fly fishing, my wife and I stayed at Bozbuck Mountain Camps. Um, uh, so there we are at Bozbuck Mountain Camps and um, it's our next to last day. I hadn't caught many fish. And uh, Tom Rideout, who became a good friend of mine over the years, at the time, though, he, he owned Bozbuck, he walks over uh, and, and asked me how we were doing. I said, well, you know, not all that great. And he hands me a Hornberg. And he said, well, you got to use this fly. I guarantee, you know, you're going to catch fish, whatever. So now it's the last night that we're there. And it's pouring rain. And my wife says to me, well, you know, let's go out. And I said, you know, Trish, come on. It's a gale out there. Well, my father says fishing in the rain. It's, that's the best time to fish. I said, well, maybe in the rain, but not in a gale, but she insisted. So we went out to this particular spot, and the wind was blowing so hard from my back that that Hornberg, and it's a big bushy fly, the Hornberg was literally just hitting the surface and bouncing up into the air, hitting the surface, bouncing up into the air. I couldn't get it to stay on the surface because the wind was blowing. And don't you know, at the height of it being in the air, the biggest brook drought to this day that I have ever seen uh, comes flying out, his tail clears the water, and he grabs the Hornberg and he goes down. And I, and I didn't have a net because I didn't think I was going to catch any fish. And uh, just as I get, he gets to my wading boot, of course, he turns, he breaks off the Hornberg, and he's gone. Well, I go back the next morning, we're checking out, and uh, I'm beside myself. And I, I said to Tom, uh, you know, I tell him the story. And uh, I said, you got to give me a dozen of those flies. And he says, well, what flies? I said, that, that fly you gave me yesterday. And he, he kind of chuckled. He says, Bob, to be honest with you, 
I just give flies out to anybody and I always tell them they're going to catch fish. I don't remember what <laughs> fly I gave you. And, and I'm trying to think of the name and I'm trying to think of the name. And the only name that came to my mind, I couldn't think of Hornberg. The only name that came to my mind was, I said, it's the Goldberg, right? And he looks at me, he says, uh, that Jewish fly, that's what you want? So I took that true story. And from that, there is a story in this collection called the Goldberg. And uh, it's not necessarily me, uh, but it kind of use those facts to come up with an interesting uh, story. So, you know, you don't know where, where, where stories necessarily are, are uh, go- going to come from. But once again, whether it's true or not, doesn't really matter. It's, it's all in the spirit of it, right, at that point. I think so. Yep, yep. Got, yeah, I, I was just going to tell you just one quick story if we have the time. So um, my first book, uh, which is out of print, it's actually really tough to, to get. Uh, it's called Shadows in the Stream. It went through four printings uh, before going out of print. And um, it even had a 10 anniversary uh, edition. Uh, but um, um, basically, every chapter is a story about a different lake, stream, or pond in the region. And I know that a lot of fellas, uh, uh, a lot of fellas and gals, use that book uh, almost uh, as a, a, a guide uh, to you know where, where to go. So. Um, uh, Every now and then, like any fisherman, I complain about uh, too many people coming up, you know, and, and fishing in my in my spots. So one day uh, I'm going to this particular spot, very special spot, whose name I'm not going to tell you. Uh, and um, sure enough, I drive. You have to actually hike down a trail, uh, and, and you, you you wouldn't even be able to find the trail. Uh, they're like spruce spruce boughs over it, uh, and then but you would park your car and, and basically, you know. You wouldn't even know why you would park there. And you'd remove the boughs. You walk down the trail. About 10 minutes later, you get to this great spot. So I go there. And sure enough, there's a there's a SUV there with Massachusetts plates. And I said, oh, boy, OK, well, I'm not going to bother him. So I go back to my cabin. I have lunch. And then I go back again. This time, the fella is driving out. I'm driving in. So I roll down my window. He, he rolls down his window. And I said, Bob, I just have to ask you this question. How in heck did you find that spot? And he smiles at me and he grabs a book and he shows me and he says, I don't know, this guy from New Jersey wrote this book about Maine and I'm just following it chapter by chapter, every spot that he talks about. So I just smiled. I drove back. I told my wife the story and she said, well, you've got two choices. One is to stop writing books <laughs> or the other is to stop grousing about people, you know, following your, your direction. <laughs> right. So um, that's a cautionary tale. You know, at the end of the day, though, that, you know, I I get that you don't want people fishing your, your quote-unquote sacred spots, but I feel like that's the kind of person who at least appreciates it. You know, they're they're going through the journey with you reading your book, and it, it's a little different than someone, you know, throwing that out on Google and, you know, 100 people read it and all show up there. You know, that I, I feel like that type of person is the type of person you're going to get along with anyway. I, I, I agree completely. There's no, you know, um, I'm going to tell you a secret. Uh, and and um, um, in my real life, uh, I'm an attorney. I'm a lawyer. Uh, because out of college, I wanted to be a writer, uh, but I had no life experience. I, ha- I had really nothing to write about. And it was only years later, uh, you know, ha- learning the history of this region in Maine, uh, having fly fished for, for, for many, many years, uh, having some life experience that I then uh, became a writer. So, um, you know, when a client calls me, uh, my staff will, will, will 
uh, you know, confirm this for you. Uh, I might be on the phone for five minutes and then I'm off because I've got more important things to do. Uh, so I'm a little brusque with, with a client. But if every now and then uh, I get a reader who, who somehow, you know, finds out my phone number at my office uh, or an angler for that matter and will give me a call. And, uh, you know, they might cause, is this, you know, Bob Romano and he's the, the writer of the fisherman and they just roll their eyes because they know that's going to be a one hour <laughs> phone conversation. Uh, so, um, that's, that's where really my true love is. So yeah, I, I agree with you. There's, there's no question if, if you're going to, if you're going to go through the trouble of finding that spot, driving, you know, down a logging road, whatever it takes to get to it, you deserve to be able right, to fish right. it. And, and the hassle of, yeah, you know, yeah. not that not that reading a good book is a hassle, but actually sitting down, taking the time to read through that versus just wanting like a, a list of people's, you know, favorite fishing spots. Like there's there's just a different type yeah, of person yeah. there who's who's taking that approach. Um, but why yeah. don't you, uh, just to wrap up, why don't you tell me, um, you know, what books do you have out? What I know you just recently released a book um, that you sent me, The River Flowers. Yep. Um, so take this time to plug whatever you want. I know you have written some articles as well. So whatever you want to share with people that you, you'd like sure. people to check out. Well, um, first of all, my website is ForgottenTrout.com. So if anybody is interested in my writing, uh, they can go to the website. Uh, there's all sorts of reviews, uh, a lot of information on the books, the books covers, uh, some excerpts from the books as well. Um, my uh, email address is McGalloway, which is the name of the river, right? McGalloway at Mac.com. So that is uh, M-A-G-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y. McGalloway at Mac.com. If anybody wants information on the region, uh, you know, when to go, uh, what are the bugs like, uh, you know, the black flies, things like that. Well, um, uh, just, just you know, shoot me an email and I, and I really enjoy, you know, communicating with folks. I'll give you as much information as I can. I can give you local guides. I can give them the local fly shop, uh, you name it. I'll be happy to provide it to them. Uh, anybody wants an autograph book? Uh, again, you can email me. I can tell you how to get an autograph book. Um, uh, which you know you're not going to obviously get on Amazon. Um, the 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 um, uh, the two books that are that are currently available uh, is the new book that just came out December fifteenth, and that is River Flowers, um, and that again is a collection of short stories about wild trout, uh, where they're uh, located, uh, and the people that you know gravitate uh, toward them. Um, uh, the other book is The River King, and The River King uh, is a novel that is set in Rangeley. It's set in this Rangeley Lakes region. Uh, all the fishing uh, in that book is accurate. Uh, they're fishing the same places that you'd be fishing if you spent uh, you know, some time there. Uh, and the rivers are, are properly named. The pools are properly named. Um, so uh, the, what's fictitious is the story and the characters. And the characters... Um, uh, you know, my other novels that are that now out of print were written really from the viewpoint of um, um, uh, somebody coming to the region and and and, and not living there, uh, but fishing there. Uh, so somebody like myself, for instance, the River King uh, is written from the perspective of four twenty somethings living in the region, uh, and like many parts of the country, uh, the Rangeley region is economically depressed uh, and about the only way to make a living is logging, which is very dangerous or, um, catering to sports, catering to folks that are coming there to fish. 
uh, or coming there to ski. So I, I, I wondered, you know, what would it be like to be 20 years old, uh, have a really tough time making a living, uh, probably not going to college, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you love you love your lakes, rivers, and streams that are yours, and yet you see very wealthy people coming there uh, and kind of uh, you know using the the one thing that you can claim is your own, uh, you know. So so they've got this kind of conflict between well, I got to be nice to these folks because that's how I'm going to make a living, but on the other hand, you know, I'm kind of envious uh, that you know I I don't have the money that they have, I don't have the privileges uh, that they have. So uh, the four characters, one is Harry, and he's the fly fishing guide. The other fella is Gilroy, and Gilroy is quite a character. He also is a low-level drug dealer, uh, but, but quite honestly, he's my favorite uh, in the book. Um, there is Pity Boy, who is developmentally disabled, you know, but his buddies take care of him. And then uh, there's Thelma Louise, uh, and Thelma Louise... Um, uh, wants nothing more than to get the hell out of Rangeley and to make it big. And, you know, one month she wants to be the beautician to the stars, and the next month she wants to be a country western singer. Anything, anything, just to get out of the boredom, uh, what she thinks is is boredom, of this region. Meanwhile, her, her boyfriend, Harry, uh, you know, loves the region uh, because he's, a, he's, a, he's an angler and he's a, he's a fly fishing guide and he can never leave the region. So there's a little conflict there as well. And hopefully, and so these are four blue collar kids, tough edge kids. Um, um, hopefully by the end of the book, you fall in love with them. And, and, and I'm not going to tell you whether they make it or not. That'll, you'll, have to, you'll have to read the book to see. Uh, but those are the two books that are out now. That's The River King uh, and, and uh, River Flowers. Oh, man, yep. you, you sent me River Flowers, the PDF, but I might have to get River King, too, because it sounds like a really uh, fun story. <laughs> Uh, you send you uh, you send me uh, an email and I'll get you Sounds a PDF. Good. How's yeah. that? Oh, you know what? I don't have a PDF of River King. Um, I don't know. I, I guess the publisher has that. Uh, I lo- I don't know how I got the PDF on River Flowers, <laughs> but I don't think I have one for River King, or I would have sent it to you. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna look for it for you. I'll see if Sounds I can get good. it. Well, Bob, this has been such a, a yep. fun conversation. I'm so glad you reached out because um, in in addition to just hearing about how to fish in different regions of the country, which I always enjoy listening to. Um, I, I really like hearing these localized fishing cultures that, that no one would know about if they hadn't talked to someone who had been there or had been there themselves. Um, and I really just like that. This is what fishing is kind of evolved into. I feel like at this point, um, just being able to hear these unique cultures from people and like what really draws them to fishing. So this has just been a, an absolute treat. And I'm so glad you uh, reached out to me and, and expressed an interest in coming on. Well, Kate, it was it was really wonderful for me, and I appreciate you giving me an opportunity uh, to speak to your listeners. Uh, if you ever decide to, to you know take a trip east, you've got my email. Uh, let me know, and I'll I'll set you up in the Rangy Lakes. You've got to be careful. Um, someone else offered that recently, and I took him up on it, so I might be hitting you up at some point. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Can, can, I, can I tell you one more really really Absolutely, quick story? Yeah. Um, all right. So when I when I do my programs. Um, uh, you know, again, it's, it's visual and I'm sure I have a map of the area and I'm even showing people roughly where my camp is. Right. And I'll usually at the end of the, at the, just like I did with you at the end of the program, I'll say, Hey, if, and if anybody gets up to the region and you drive by my camp, stop in. And my wife just goes ballistic. You know, she rolls her eyes and says, you know, you gotta be out of your mind. You gotta, people, I said, look, who's really going to come to my camp? Who's going to make that trip and who's really going to find it? Well, um, 
uh, th- there's one there's one spot uh, in the region, and it's behind locked gates. So I can't get into it unless I have the key. Uh, Bozebuck Mountain Camps has the key. Every now and then, because I know the owner, you know, he, he, he lets me up there. Uh, well, what happens? Uh, a fella shows up, um, and he just shows up at my camp. And, you know, I walk out, and I see this car, and, and he says, Hey, he's like my best friend. Hey, Bob, it's good to see you. Uh, so, you know, we're going to go fishing, right? And I, I, I'm looking at the guy and I, I almost said, well, who the hell are you? You know, and he says, don't you remember me? I was at your program. You said whenever, you know, whenever I'm in the area to stop by Well, I'm here. Well, I was about to kick the guy out. And what does he do? He shows me the key. And he says, I got a key to the upper, upper river. I thought you could show me around. I looked at my wife and I smiled. I said, I'll be right there. And I got a day to fish on the upper river. Well, there you go. So there you go, Kate. Well, I don't have the key, but I might show up there and then hope you have one that day. (laughs) That sounds good. (laughs) Well, Bob, I will let you get going. I know it's a couple hours ahead, but uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on. I will uh, send you the audio of this once I get it edited. And um, I'm sure people are going to have a great time learning about uh, a region of Maine they probably haven't thought too much about until now. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, Don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.